Hey everyone, I'm Casey Funderberg, host of The Slice. The purpose of this podcast is to give you all a slice of our players' lives. But today we're going to talk about a part of their lives that's usually hidden. A lot has happened in this country over the last few weeks. It was a painful night in Minneapolis and a day of difficult questions about the death of George Floyd, his treatment by the police, and the department's relationship with citizens of color. The murder of George Floyd and subsequent protests have brought to life an ugly American truth, a truth lived by our black athletes each day, the open wound of racism. On May 31st, Athletics Director Philip Fulmer and Tennessee's 15 head coaches released a unified statement saying, As Tennessee head coaches, we are now calling on anyone who is a fan of the Vols and Lady Vols to meet and expect a standard in our daily walk. Let us all refuse to accept or tolerate the unjust treatment of our black neighbors. Let us challenge those who attempt to justify, dismiss, ignore, or explain away mistreatment of blacks or any other person of color. Let us meet this standard head on, out loud, and outside our homes. Demand action that leads to change. Demand progress. This is a basic human principle that, among some, seems to have become as endangered as basic human rights for blacks in our communities. Vol Nation. Let's rise to the challenge to meet a new standard. If you're going to support our black student athletes when they compete, please have the courage to support them and their families in their daily pursuit of peace, happiness, and equity. Earlier this month, a few players and coaches marched in a peaceful protest in downtown Knoxville. Coach Pruitt, along with some of his players, took the stage in Market Square to address the crowd. This is Trey Smith. Thank you all for coming out and showing support. The social injustice that we still face cannot stand. This can't keep happening. Something's got to change. This isn't right. We got to make a change. The only way we can make a change is together. We all must come together and understand each other. Reach out to different people who don't look like you. Get to understand the struggles they come from. Without understanding, nothing will change. Yes, sir. Head coach Jeremy Pruitt. This is doing it the right way. I want to thank everybody for coming out here today. Uh, you're talking about courage. Uh, these guys stepping up, everybody out here. This is what we have to do, and we have to do it together. As I mentioned before, this podcast gives you all a slice of our players' lives. We have members of the Tennessee football program who want their voices to be heard on this issue. We want to warn listeners that the following episode contains sensitive content, including stories of racism and racial slurs. I'm joined now by Trey Smith. Hello. Alante Taylor. Hey, what's up, guys? Josh Palmer. What's up, y'all? Grant Ferking. Hey, everybody. Coach T. Martin. And I just want to thank you guys for being here today. And I'm just going to start off by asking you all what your thoughts and feelings are surrounding the last few weeks and just all the events that have gone on in Alante. We'll start with you. Um, I feel frustrated, um, very angry at times. 
Um, there's some times where I feel comfort. Um, I know just being here in Knoxville with my teammates and coaches, um, I can feel a little bit better just, know, just knowing that they support me and support everything that's going on. So um, I feel happy here, but at times I feel angry and I feel frustrated. Uh, quite frankly, just frustrated as well, uh, but not surprised about the, the things that we're seeing. You know, it's over time, it's built up. You know, you shouldn't really be surprised from the reactions you're seeing. Um, kind of falling off trail. I'm not really surprised. Um, you know, a lot of stuff that's going on has been going on for a long time, and it only it only took it only took a certain amount of time for it to, like Trey said, blow up. So now we're just really focused on how we can fix it instead of focusing on why we're upset. Mm-hmm. Grant, what about you when you saw your teammates having to, you know, deal with these things? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think, it was, and it still is, um, it has been and still is a really good learning lesson um, for me. Um, and I think, you know, other guys on the team to be able to step back and hear our teammates, hear others within our program, within our university, and even in our community, um, hear their thoughts, hear their frustrations. And, uh, you know, just you know, like I said, have our ears peeled and learn and and the, i think it's been so cool that you know all of us combine to come together use the platform that we have um which is so much greater than you know a lot of unheard voices out there that aren't having their voices heard for us to be able to come together you know as one voice and be able to to you know make adjustments make changes you know hear people's frustrations and then use our platform to be able to voice that um, so we can make changes and adjustments where necessary. I think it's been awesome. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hurt me at times to hear, you know, some of my teammates' stories um, from a personal standpoint, from, you know, their family standpoint. Um, but, you know, going back to just faith and stuff, it's been just so great to see, you know, brothers out there that are close to me, um, you know, personally and through our team standpoint, um, you know, just come together and, and, you know, make changes and make things right in our country and our world. Alante, you said one thing that made you happy were your coaches and your teammates. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, yeah, so when we came in, we had a team meeting where Coach Pruitt made his statement on where he stands with everything. And uh, what I really liked was he opened the floor for everyone to speak about uh, incidents that they've been in uh, with the police or any racial things that they've been a part of. And uh, to hear my teammates' story, um, I feel it made me closer to them. And then I feel like it made our team closer as well. Um, I know the statement was brought up for us to all get registered to vote and uh, us all vote on November 3rd. And the reactions that I seen around the room made my heart feel more warm uh, than before. So, uh, and then going with Coach Pruitt and seeing so many teammates come out with the march that we did here in Knoxville, I feel like that right there put an exclamation point on um, where we stand as a university and as a football program. Trey, will you explain how the march happened, how you guys got together, decided to do that, and how the coaches got involved? Yeah, I would give a lot of credit to Palmer and Alante here. Uh, they made it sort of known that there was a march that was occurring the next day. Uh, for me, you know, I just reached out to some of my really close friends on the team, like, hey, you guys interested on going? And, uh, you know, we proceeded to go on down. Uh, but at the end of the day, we rendezvoused up. You know, we walked together. But it, it was really powerful. I think one of the things I wanted to say was, uh, prior to the event, I had no clue or indication that like Coach Pruitt was going to be there. So like just even seeing him walking, marching with him, 
you know, I sort of spoke volumes to his character, in my opinion. Yeah, what else did you guys think when you saw him come with you guys, he spoke, and then he's also taking steps to make sure you guys register to vote and that your all stories are being heard. So what does that mean to you to have a head coach who is doing these things? Uh, I'd say thankful. Um, a lot of the conversations I've had with Coach Pruitt, you know, he, he always expresses that there's no way he can really talk about the experience of a black man in America. And, you know, even him just acknowledging that and, you know, understanding that, and understand that there are injustices, there are problems in the system, there are things that need to change, there are people that are still setting their ways, you know, the fact that he acknowledged that and he's all behind us in effort, you know, to change that, you know, it speaks volumes because you're not going to get that everywhere in the country as we've seen. Um, but, you know, to have a man of that character, I mean, it means a lot in terms of support, making sure we're okay, checking on us. I, I think going back to like the team meeting we had, I think that opened a lot of eyes, you know, for non-black people, that makes sense as well. Just to understand that, like, you know, we're not just making this up. These are daily experiences that we face. These are real challenges that we face every day. And when you look at the type of guy Coach Pruitt is, like, we couldn't really expect anything less because on the field he's passionate and he's loud and he's kind of a player-oriented guy. But off the field he's just as loud and just as passionate. So when he notices that there's something that's going on in the world, that a, that a lot of his players are going through, he's going to step up and show 100% support. Coach T, what does it mean to you to work under a head coach who is doing all of these things for his players and his staff? It means a lot, you know, because as a, as a former player at the University of Tennessee, it's good to see someone take the helm uh, that keeps the players in mind and is doing what's best for the university and our players. And as a staff member, you know, you, you follow your lead. You know, he's the leader of our program, and he's setting the precedent for uh, the rest of the staff. And uh, all of our staff has been included. All of our staff has been supportive. And you couldn't ask for a better leader uh, during this time right now. What are some personal experiences that you guys have had dealing with race? I'll start. Uh... I haven't had a lot here in Knoxville, but mine really came from high school, um, going to a predominantly white high school where um, there wasn't many African-American athletes, uh, being the only black player on the baseball team, only having a few on the basketball team, and then taking the starting quarterback role in this community was really tough. Uh, my mom always told me that uh, as long as I did what I was supposed to do, that I would be okay. Uh, made sure that if anything was said to me, not to react the wrong way, um, to keep my head down and just keep pushing. So uh, in high school, I did have a lot of issues where parents were upset that you know I was a starting quarterback and that I was an African-American male. Um, and then I would hear uh, racial slurs through the hallways at school. Um, and uh, I feel like the only thing that really kept me going was my mom just telling me uh, not to say anything. So then when I would see my African-American friends uh, react in a certain way, I would stand up and just tell them, like, that's what they're looking for and that's what they want. So um, I made sure to uh, keep that with me when I came here, um, knowing that Knoxville isn't an HBCU school. So I wasn't going to be around a lot of African-American people. So just keeping that same mindset that as long as I keep my head down, keep it pushing, and uh, don't, re don't react uh, in the way that they want me to, uh, I'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> sort of, I guess, like playing on what Alante said. Uh, you know, I went to a predominantly white uh, school, 
from elementary school all the way up. Uh, really, you could even go like back to pre-K all the way up through my high school career. Uh, I know when all this started going down, my dad had a conversation just to remind me, um, you know, that, rev that racism is still always and has been prevalent uh, back where I come from. And like a story I know I keep using, but it always comes back to my mind because how young I was. Uh, I think I was like three or four years old. You know, I was in pre-K. And one of my best friends at the time was this little white girl. I don't remember her name or anything, but I ended up going to Walmart with my dad and my family. You know, I'm playing like a kid. I see my friend. I run to her. I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, we're, you know, dancing, doing stuff like little, you know, toddlers, kids like that do. And my dad said that her grandfather came up and called me a nigger. And I remember I had to walk away and I asked my dad, you know, dad, what does nigger mean? You know, and just having experienced that at that young age, you know, that's, that's, that's huge. And I mean, even on top of that, like I went back to preschool and she wouldn't talk to me anymore. Like no more eye contact, just just like the relationship was over. And then, you know, just going to high school in a predominantly white high school, uh, you know, you experience things like Alante said, you know, a lot of times the only thing you can do is compartmentalize it, put it in the back and just keep moving. Cause if you react, you're in the wrong. I remember times I've been called the N word at high school um, you know, just out eating lunch as a joke, or they use the N-word around me all the time. And if I would have reacted in a different way, or if I would have said something, I would have spoke up. I don't know how they would have reacted. I don't know how the school reacted. I think USA would have had my back. I don't, I'm not throwing them under the bus whatsoever. I'm just saying at the time, you're the minority. There was, I mean, there was a point where it was like me and my roommate now, Zachary, we were the only two black kids at USA for a pretty long amount of time. I think at its peak, when we were in high school, we only had like maybe 10. You know, and we're talking about a student body, about 400 kids. So you had a lot of rough experiences that you just have to brush off and just keep going because you don't, you're either too sensitive or you overreacted. Coach T, do you have any experiences that you had growing up or just as a player here that you want to share? Yeah. Well, I just go back to growing up uh, from Mobile, Alabama. I've uh, been a young man when uh, I watched the news one night and um, there was a young man by the name of Michael Donald that was hung in a tree outside of his mother's house. And I was a member of the Boys and Girls Club uh, at the time. And he was walking home from the Boys Club when, uh, you know, he was kidnapped, uh, murdered, and hung uh, outside of his mother's house. And me and my friends at that time, I mean, it was fear. You know, you're literally saying that could have been one of us walking home from the boys' club, and all the time, you know, you saw white people. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, all black neighborhood, uh, and you would see white people come in and get gas at the gas station, get back on the highway, or, you know, different people in the neighborhood asking for directions or something. So it would have been easy to, it could have easily been one of us that got snatched up and, and, and that happened to us. And so I remember just me and my friends going to school, going to the boys' club. We wanted to be five, six, seven, eight of us together and just always saying we're never going to wake up. we got to stay together. And uh, that happened for a few years. And, uh, and then just, just playing in the SEC, uh, being a black quarterback in the early, in the 90s, uh, it still was a time where uh, Country Holloway had broke the color barrier at the University of Tennessee and they were starting to play more black quarterbacks in the SEC. But I can tell you that uh, – I was called many things, you know, on the road in the SEC uh, and, and just having awkward experiences that you know had to do with race, you know. And uh, I became the starting quarterback. Things got better. 
But uh, when people don't know who you are, they don't know that you play for Tennessee and things of that nature, uh, you do get treated a little different. So uh, those are the, the, the main experiences that I've gone through. Do you guys think there's a double standard when it comes to being a, a black man versus a black athlete? There is this idea of black acceptance where, where you know, before you knew who I was, you looked at me strangely. And then you realize, oh, you play for Tennessee or you coach at Tennessee. And now the conversation opens up to something totally different. And, you know, it happened to me as a player where you get the questions of, oh, uh, you must play sports. You must play football. Well, how do you know? Maybe I'm here uh, for man school. Or, you know, maybe I'm here just to get my education like you. Why do I have to play football? And so, uh, you know, that stuff happens all the time. And uh, you just wonder why. Obviously, uh, it's because of your skin color. But I think that if we continue to, to have these conversations and open up and allow people to be uncomfortable at times so that we can get comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, we can progress as a society. Because that shouldn't be the way that, you're only accepted because you're an athlete or an entertainer, but you don't like the rest of the race. So that's not good. Yeah. Um. To follow on what Coach T was saying, yeah, I, 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 I think so because one thing I wanted to, I wanted to talk about was like you see a lot of, a lot of guys from other schools doing a lot of uh, a lot of stuff on social media, and a lot of fans will reach out to those guys and be like. Oh, I was a season ticket holder for this long, and this and that, and I'm no longer coming to the games because because of whatever's going on. But if you actually look at it for what it is, they're basically saying we're not coming to the games anymore because y'all are standing up for yourselves. So at this point, any fans out there, like if you if you guys don't support us as human beings, don't come to the games because I'd rather have nobody in the stands than a bunch of fakes and people who pretend they like us just because we entertain them. So stay home for real. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I second that uh, 100%. Because um, at the end of the day, I'm not here for your simple amusement and entertainment. I'm also a human being. I can think. I'm educated. I speak well. You know, like, I'm, I'm still a person. And at the end of the day, you know, we can't remain muzzled up all the time. We have to speak our mind because that's our right. It's an American right, right to free speech, you know. So if you don't like what you see, I mean, keep it moving. There's nothing really keeping you here. So from this point on, like, if you're not with it, you know, you can leave. It's okay because we're moving forward, and that's progress. Yeah, um, kind of going off what Trey said at the beginning, there's been many times where I would start having conversations with people, and they would look at me in a weird way, and I'm just like, like, are you okay? And they're like, well, I didn't think that you spoke that well or that um, you could carry on conversation without saying cuss words all the time. And I'm just like, well – I'm just like you, aren't I? Um, there's also been many times where I've heard some of my teammates who get pulled over and a cop comes up to the car and there's issues, right? But then when they run the license and figure out who they are, it's like a whole different conversation when they come back to the window. So um, I've also been in situations, like I said, besides me just having conversations where I would go to a friend's house and the grandparents wouldn't know who I am. But then once the parents explained that I was their grandchildren's uh, friend, it would still be an iffy moment until the parents would explain more in detail. Rather it be they've taken me places, I've stayed the night with them, and then like the room seems to be a little bit better. Uh, but the biggest one would be whenever I go and speak to people or 
uh, have conversations with parents, they're kind of confused that I can speak so well and that I'm not just this kid who just uses cuss word after cuss word just to try and get a conversation or get my point across. Dre, you're nodding your head. What are your thoughts to that? <laughs> that that's funny because uh, that that's something that I've experienced most of my life. Just anytime anyone meets me, wow, I can't believe you speak so well. You know, uh, wow, you're so articulate. You know, sometimes, you know, you can overread that and it could be just a simple compliment. But the vast majority of the times, you know, a lot of times I do understand what they're trying to say. They've never seen someone that looks like me speak so well and so eloquently, you know. So I, I think that's sort of an insult. You're just assuming based off the way I look, the way I have my hair, the way I dress, the way I present myself, that I'm something that I'm not. You know what I mean? Yeah, hey, I want to touch on, if I can, on on what uh, Alante and Trey just said. And I think that um, through all this that we've been through, in the past couple of weeks, I think that there is kind of a diamond in the rough and that some students and kids and people that are around our program go to our university or just the general society age group of the younger generation has been able to kind of see and form a different belief and thought process than maybe that they're getting from home or maybe their, their, their parents and grandparents taught them growing up. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of kids, you know, don't mean so much harm when they come across some ways, but I think that's just what they've grown up around. And I think that, you know, like, like Alante was saying, you know, you know, he comes with, as a friend with, with, with someone and he goes to their grandparents' house and the grandparents have a totally different thought process when they first see him than the parents did because they know Alante and, or they know Trey. And I think that kind of a, a blessing in disguise with all this stuff has been that there's a lot of people that are getting, you know, accustomed to this generation and are their their eyes are being opened to acceptance and being able to be around and knowing that, you know, we are all the same. You know, we're all God's children and he made us all the same. And and there's no need for divide, you know, being being divisive and, and racism isn't biblical. It's not right. And I think that a lot of kids, you know, in, in society right now are actually, you know, learning to be more inclusive because they may have not been getting that at home, you know, throughout their childhood. Um, and even, you know, their parents when they were growing up from their grandparents, because it was a totally different generation back then. Do you guys feel like a lot of people, I guess, closer to your age are different or are you know, being more open-minded and taking time to listen instead of just speaking? Well, the thing is, like, we don't really know, you know, because a lot of people don't speak up. So it's kind of hard to say if they're, um, if they're open up to learning. Um, but I can say just from the support from the football team and um, a couple of non-African-American friends that I have, they, they speak up with, with no hesitation. Like they're in full support, but it's the people that you'll see every day on campus. Like you don't know, you don't know whether they're racist. You don't know if they like you or if they hate you. Like you just don't know. So until then, um, we kind of just focus on what we can do to create the change. And if people don't want to be on board, then that's that's too bad because the change is going to come regardless if you want it to or not. Why is it so important for people to speak up, especially not just? black athletes or black students, but white athletes, white students, white Americans? I can't, I can't say that I, I understand why, the, why white people don't speak up, 
but if I could if I could guess, they would probably feel a little bit of pressure from um, from maybe fans or their family members or um, friends that are also white that would be like, oh, why are you speaking up or why are you doing this? So I think a lot of them are mute because of that, even though they probably want to speak up a lot. Um, but again, it's just it's just my opinion. I'm just I'm just guessing. I think it's important. Um, most importantly, like to speak up because you're changing a narrative essentially. Um, the reason I'm so outspoken right now, and the reason I am trying to make an effective change, is because you know I had a grandfather that fought in France in World War II, and he came back to Mississippi, and they treated him like you know, like crap. They had to fight for everything he had. So I'm still fighting this battle that he fought, and I want to leave the world better for my kids. And you got to understand that this is all systematic. Like this affects like how people are hiring, medical practices towards Black people. It's a whole system against us, and. You know, we have, to out, we have to speak. We have to be outspoken. We have to be present with it because at the end of the day, I'm trying to leave a better position for my future children, for future generations that look like me, and for future general, generations for everyone, honestly. Grant, what is your perspective on using your voice? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, obviously, you know, in my position as, you know, a student athlete, even as an employer, um, on that side of things, it, you know, it's all about using your platform effectively. Um, and I know all the people on this, you know, call and, and around this table right now can all touch to that. There's a lot of people that, that look up to people in this room right now. And, you know, they might not say anything if, if they don't think that, you know, people in this table are saying anything. And, and they, I, I just think that, you know, if I can use my voice and I can be a small part of the, the puzzle that, you know, if, there, if change is going to be brought, then I want to be a part of that. And I just know that, you know, if I'm being silent, that, you know, that could bring a lot of other silence. But, you know, if I speak up um, and I can I can stand firm on where I stand and my support and, you know, knowing that there is a need for change, there's a lot of other people that can come along um, to help bring that change too. We'll be back in a moment. The last few weeks have presented a unique time where not just black people, but white people, too, are speaking out about racism in America and calling for change. That conversation is also taking place at UT. Today, we are joined by Tyvee Small, the vice chancellor for diversity and engagement at the University of Tennessee. Tyvee, tell us a little bit about your role on campus. Well, first of all, good morning and thank you for having me. So my role really is to serve as the chief diversity officer and really chief community engagement officer for the university. And so while diversity is in my title, one of the things that we always talk about is diversity is everybody's everyday business. And so my job and my team's job is really to lead the conversation and to lay the foundation so that we can really address critical issues, critical topics, critical um, policies, procedures, um, practices around equity, diversity, and inclusion. So really my team and I lead the university's efforts around those issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and we have four pillars that we stand on. One is access and compliance, right? Making sure that people do the right thing. One is about assessment and evaluation, right? So making sure that um, people are held accountable. Really, it's about accountability. The other one is about education and training, right? So how do we 
help educate people? How do we help people understand the importance of uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion? And then the last pillar is around community engagement and outreach. So how do we take all of this that we have, this thought leadership, this experience at the university, and take it to our communities, particularly those communities who may be underserved and, uh, and, and underutilized? So that's really the work that we do as a team. What were some of the first actions taken by leadership of the university once all of these events started happening in our nation? Well, two things. First, you know, our office is is relatively new, so I've been in this role permanently for about 10 months. And so it was foresight on the university to really, when we refunded the office, to to refund the office particularly. And so um, we were already laying a foundation, a strong foundation, to do this work before these things started to happen. And so when they did happen, we weren't necessarily in reactionary mode. Right. We were already we had already laid some solid foundation. So if you think about what was happening around curricular transformation, we were involved in those conversations. We were talking about assessment and accountability. Um, we had already de- developed diversity action plans, which were going to hold academic deans and vice chancellor units accountable for diversity, equity and inclusion metrics. Um, we were already working on a climate survey, which was to really gauge our climate so that as we did this work, we had a clear a clear consensus or a clear view about the climate that we needed to impact. And we were already doing the heavy lifting around ideas about, um, if you think about the work that we do, we, we touch every part of campus. So student life was doing a whole lot around uh, mattering and belonging and the Vol is a Verb campaign. We were doing a lot of work around intergroup dialogue and standing that up and uh, NCBI with Student Life, National Coalition Building Institute. So we were already laying that foundation. We were already working on curricular curricular issues. We were already working on evaluative metrics. And we were really working with the leadership on uh, how do we have those conversations. When you think about diversity work, um, before we can have the rest of the, the, the campus go through this stuff and really understand the, the work of diversity, we had to do that as a leadership team. And so the cabinet had already had a series of um, workshops and sessions really to help us have those com- those difficult conversations. One of the things that Susan Packard talked about when she came here, she's one of the co-founders of HGTV, she talked about having to be comfortable. You have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And we were already, as a, as a leadership team, in some of those uncomfortable conversations when we talked about privilege, white privilege, when we talked about anti-racism, when we talked about LGBTQ plus issues. And so um, we had already laid the foundation as a university to dive into those and then to look strategically, right? So it's one thing to have the conversation, but the other thing is really the how do you do this work? Because we weren't interested in um, surface level work. Um, I'm not interested in it. My team isn't interested. And so we were really thinking about structural, systemic issues around racism, anti-blackness, um, anti-racism, how we do that work. And so we were really thinking about um, and we've been working on ways to look at policies and procedures that um, that exclude people. We were looking at um, practices that um, are exclusive instead of inclusive. So we were already doing that work. Awesome. Thank you for joining us today, Tyvee. Thank you. Alante, you talked about this a little bit, but growing up, did you guys have certain conversations with your family about race in general and about interacting with different individuals, especially the police? Um, my my grandfather, he kind of told me, uh, kind of like what my mom told me, uh, to keep my head down and keep pushing. Um, he grew up... Uh, being an only African-American baseball player in a small town, uh, being invited to an all-star game where 
he was told that he couldn't play in the game and they had traveled um, a couple hours away. Um, so he just told me just keep my head down and keep pushing. But my mom always told me, like I said before, um, I know it might sound bad to be quiet and not to react, but it's going to help me later on. Um, and I feel like that, that it's done that for me to this day. Uh, there's been situations where I've just wanted to spaz out. I've wanted to um, say many things to different people. But when we're already looked at as uh, dirt or trash in some ways, and if I was to react in that way, I feel like it would bring comfort to them. And that's not what I want to do. Um, and then when it comes to the police, um, I don't know. I, I hear the same stories, you know, when the police comes, just do what they ask you to do. Uh, be still. Don't touch anything. Ask if you can touch certain things. Well, obviously, that stuff is not helping to this day. So when I see a cop drive by me or if I see a cop that's just cruising behind me, my heart's pounding because if he does turn his blue lights on, who knows if I want to make it to my destination, even if I do exactly what they tell me to do. Um, so I, to this day, I don't know what I'm supposed to do when a cop pulls me over because, like I said, if I do what everyone's always said to do, it, it hasn't worked. Obviously, people are still getting shot and killed. So question for me is what do I do? And you can ask cops in, our, in Knoxville here, and they would tell you what to do. But then again, question still rely, uh, is the same. Okay, if I do that and something still happens, then what? So I don't know if there's an actual answer to how to react when you're pulled over. Going back to my grandparents again, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, on my mom's side, they were some of the first black instructors in like a rural area in Mississippi, close by, I think it was Corinth. Uh, so they had to deal with immense racism on scales that I can't even fathom, if that makes sense. Uh, and this was back in the day. Um, I remember when my sister and I, we ended up going to University School of Jackson, which was a predominantly white high school at the time and school in general. Uh, you know, they told us that we were going to be faced with different uh, situations and adversities. And, you know, at the end of the day, we were going to get our degree. We we're going to get our education. because That's something they can never take from you. And we're gonna also going to respect. You know, you're going to respect me at the end of the day. You're going to understand I'm an intellectual being. You're going to understand that I have promises for a successful future. And, you know, my parents always prepared us well. And they always took the extra steps that we were if we ever needed anything financially, if we ever had anything due, we were always in our schoolwork, we were always studying. They would require us to do this because a lot of times in life, being quite honest, being a black American, you got to be that much better to get a lot of things you want to get. That's just, a, that's just a hard truth and reality. Uh, so my, I feel like my parents prepared me well. When it comes down to police officers, I have the utmost respect uh, for the police officers that put their lives on the line and try to make a positive and you know, a great change um, but we also know there are a few bad apples as well that, you know, their sole intentions are to demonize people, to meet a certain quota, to do certain things, to terrorize, to antagonize a group of people because they know they have the authority to get away with it time after time after time again. And that's so frustrating. So frustrating. You see all types of examples. And this is not just black people, it's white people as well. But right now, the emphasis is on black people because it's been happening so many years after years after years after years. And it's a culmination of that. And... I've had this conversation with my dad too many times, being honest with you, like, we're probably going like time 10. Because I remember Trayvon Martin, it was even before that, it was when I first got my license, you know, Trey, if you get pulled over, don't make any sudden movements, be very clear, turn your overhead light on, keep your hands on the steering wheel, don't make any sudden movements. You know, you're a large black guy, they might be intimidated, 
they don't know, they have a hard profession, you know, they already, stuff's already going on, don't give them any reason, you know. And that was back then, and Trayvon Martin comes around, you know, that whole conversation happens again, and then again, and then again, and again. And I remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe like a month ago, when I was back at home with my dad, you know, he's just telling me, how do you feel about everything going on? You know, I vent my frustrations, and then we have that same conversation for about the 11th time in a row. You know, whenever you get stopped, no sudden movements. Hands on the steering wheel. If it's nighttime, turn on the overhead light, clear communications, do not be too fast, be very respectful, and you might get out of it alive, basically. And I'm tired of having that conversation. I should be able to live without fear. Every time I see a cop in my rear view, I mean, I double take. And I've had great, great um, encounters with police officers, but still, the stigma that, that comes with it, the stigma that comes with having black skin and being a black large male, I have to double take, look, make sure I'm going to speed limit, make sure my lights are everything, make sure everything is spick and span whenever I hit the road. Do you guys have these conversations with any of your white teammates and white friends? And Grant, you can probably speak on this too. Do they talk about ever having those types of conversations with their families? I have yet to hear uh, one of my white friends tell me what their conversations would be like with their parents when getting pulled over. Um, and just know I'm, I'm noticing and I'm taking notes for sure. Um, I've surrounded myself after high school with a lot of really good, I mean, we're the term, really good white people in my opinion. They do the right things, uh, great home backgrounds. You know, they believe in the ideals that are progressing forward. And they talk about the conversations they've had with their parents, how uncomfortable it can get. But I also have a, a group of white friends who do not challenge those ideas that just simply get reinforced by the old ways that they've been taught. And they don't, they don't challenge it because they understand that if they challenge it, it's almost like, being honest, I understand why they don't challenge it. Because it's almost like excommunication from your family who still believes that thing. You know, I've seen those instances happen, you know. So I, I, I ask them to challenge those beliefs. And if they can't change the hearts of their relatives, you know, whenever you have kids, pass on your beliefs to them and then start changing the narrative as well. Yeah, I think what Trey just said, too, I think that kind of that, that exactly what he said is, you know, a lot of it's generational and these, it's what these kids grow up in. And, you know, for whatever reason, whether they don't want to, you know, get backlash from their family or feel like, you know, they're going to be a part of the family, they, they don't want to change their ways. And they're, they're stubborn to the fact that they can't see that there's stuff going on and that changes needs to be, need, need to be brought. And, you know, I think just the more people that can, you know, have these conversations, like Coach, like Coach T said, you know, be comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and, you know, having the same conversations with their black friends, with their white friends, and, and knowing that, like, there's real stuff going on right now that, that needs to change. And it's going to bring forth a lot better, you know, America and, and nation for, you know, not only us, but, you know, for our kids and our grandchildren, you know, years and decades from now. Grant, have you ever been with one of your black teammates and experienced racism with them? Not to a, to a specific example, but I mean, I mean, I can, I can list example after example of, of times that, you know, I've been, you know, even just hanging out with, with our, you know, teammates, you know, Josh, Alante, and Trey, you know, on the weekends or, you know, at night sometime, and you have guys that want to come up and, you know, take pictures and autographs and, you know, be your buddy, buddy at the bar. But, 
you know, is that the same, you know, is that the same kid that's saying something on Twitter or is that the same kid that's, you know, going to say something to, you know, his white friends back at home or make a joke on campus about something, you know, I just know that, you know, not any direct huge circumstances have come up, but I mean, I know that that stuff's real and, and, and people act differently when they see you as someone that's, you know, could be an advantage to them. You know, I can, I can take a picture with Trey or I can get, you know, Alante's autograph or, you know, you know, Josh was hanging out with me at this, at this place and they can put that on Snapchat. So it looks like a big deal, but you know, what do they think of, you know, Trey, Alante and Josh and all of our other teammates and all other, you know, black men and women across this country on, you know, just an average Tuesday morning or, you know, Wednesday afternoon, are, are they still coming up and, you know, being all supportive and, you know, wanting to be your best friend or are they talking different? And, and I've just seen that because I've seen people, you know, talk to my teammates and hang out with them acting like, you know, there are no problems, which, you know, in reality, they might go out and say something totally different, you know, the next morning. Coach T, as a coach and even as a father, how are you talking to your players and your children about these things? I just think uh, you got to have open conversations. I know as a coach, I've always been that way with the room that I'm coaching because I feel like I'm a servant to those guys and I haven't forgotten what it was like to be them. And no matter where I've been or where I've coached, I've coached white receivers, black receivers, white quarterbacks, black quarterbacks. And uh, as a father, you know, you have this sense of being a black man and sharing your story about all the things that I've seen and have gone through. You have this other role of educating your kids to know what's going on, not only in the world, uh, but to be better than what's going on in the world and the ills of it, but also trying to protect them from being bitter or being angry every day or being, you know, my eight-year-old, he loves everybody. He has no idea or any concept of why I can be passionate when I'm talking about race and the things that have gone on in my life and what's going on in society right now. He has no clue. And then I have 20-year-old twins that totally get it, understand it, and have seen some things. And so there's this wide spectrum of, of issues and topics and examples that every time uh, I find myself as a father, having to teach on a daily basis every time you see something. Why did they do that, Dad? You know, uh, we were in California. And I thought, you know, growing up in the South, I had seen it all and had experienced it all. And then I moved out to California with my family and experienced just as much in California as you did in, in the South. And so it's a, it's a societal issue when Caden, uh, you know, goes up to a baseball field, signs up for a team, and without even knowing him at all, he gets thrown in the outfield. And he's standing there like, no, I play pitcher. And the coach is like, no, get in the outfield. And it took about six games for them to realize, no, he really does play pitcher. Why wouldn't you give him a shot like some of the other kids? And he just didn't understand that. I had to explain it to him. You know? And so uh, as a coach, I, I'm an extension of their father. You know, they, those families trust us to, to guide their sons when they come to us. And there's education in it, and there's leading by example as well. 
We've talked a lot about there needs to be changes. People need to make a change. What are some changes that you guys would like to see in your communities and in your country? I just, I'll, I'll start off, and, and guys, you can chime in. I think, number one, the biggest change I would like to see uh, in, in college sports or in general in society is this idea of these young men feeling that they had to get their mind right to have this conversation. Or can I go all the way real without people going to my DMs or going on my social media page? and feeling backlash or hearing backlash or losing relationships on my team? Can I be all the way real? Or do I take this interview and just say it was politically correct, kind of get my feelings out, but not go there? And I think we have to get past that. I think people have to understand that when you hear a black man or woman, a minority speaking with so much passion, that there's pain behind it. There, there are real-life experiences behind that voice. Uh, and so until we can get to a point where speak, people can speak their mind, a young man or woman can walk into your office or go on social media and totally speak their mind, and there's, you just hear it, you just see it for what it is, and you accept it, and you move forward with that. Uh, I think that more student-athletes will speak their minds because they won't then feel like they'll be ridiculed or get backlash for being real, so to speak. Yeah, I would sort of second that, just like the stigma, like muzzling student-athletes a lot of times, that at the end of the day, we are still human beings. We're intellectual people, that we have opinions on things, and we have the ability to share and express our opinions. And I think a lot of times, I look at like my Twitter, I lost about 200 followers as soon as I started speaking about anything about this movement. And, you know, it's sort of good riddance in those words because they're too caught up in the entertainment aspect instead of learning about, you know, who is Trey Smith as a person. In regards to changing my community, in the city of Jackson, I want to do more for the underprivileged population, people who don't make a lot of money. There's no resources for the youth, so what they do, they turn to crime. So we need an outlet for people to have something to do. A lot of times in the summer when school's not going on, when there's not after-school programs, there needs to be something done, and I'm going to do that. I would say just, just justice, like equal justice for everything and everybody. Like, there should be no reason why someone is charged with the exact same crime but gets 10-plus years. Like, I don't, I don't see how that makes sense. And um, I think that's where a lot of the frustration and anger is coming from is people are, are um, they're off the hook when they do something that's wrong. You know, and it's a, lot of, a lot of times it's, it's, it's when something is done to an African-American um, everything is looked at as uh, they'll forget about it in about three weeks and everything will be okay. But as soon as it's a it's an African American doing the crime, it's it's um, it's all over the news. It's a uh, it's a huge problem, and everybody wants to go to the prosecution, and he goes to jail for 20 years. So I think a lot of this stuff is is equal justice, and just really knowing what's right from what's wrong. Like one thing that bothered me a lot was when I saw that reporter um, talk. And she comments on LeBron James talking about just, just shut up and dribble. But then when Drew Brees has something to say that's in her, that, that she likes to hear, it's, uh, he has a right to speak his opinion. So it's almost like, it's like, what? Like, how do you explain that? Like, how could you sit in front of me right now and explain that and convince me that what you said makes sense? Like, just, just. Mm-hmm. Um, Coach touched on it a little bit, but you all have platforms as student athletes. Do you guys feel like it's your responsibility to use your platform to promote change? 
And then how do you how do you do that? Well, I do think it's our responsibility to use our platform to create change. How we're going to do it, we're still we're still figuring that out, or I, I'm still figuring that out of what we could do. But expect changes come to come soon, because just because we're thinking about it doesn't mean other stuff are not in um, happening right now, you know. But um, the biggest thing is us using our platform, and you know, Colin Kaepernick took one to the chin, uh, sacrificing his profession, standing up for what was right, and you know, it it came back around, you know, and a lot not a lot of people now are following him, but I feel like a lot of people are following him now because the majority of people are doing it. Like nobody wanted to help him when it was just him. But now that everybody else is doing it, everybody else wants to follow behind. And, you know, that's what we have to fix and that's what has to change. Yeah, uh, kind of like what Coach Martin was saying earlier as well, uh, with our platforms, like we, I do, like Josh said, I feel like we should use it, but how can we use it without worrying about if, you know, I'm gonna lose like a scholarship or um, if, if I was to say something or do something, um, would my uh, former high school coaches or anybody like that look at me different? Um, he talked about how something has to change as far as college football overall, and I feel like the NCAA should look into just allowing athletes to speak their minds and their hearts without any type of punishment coming behind it. Um, I do feel like some athletes are still scared to share how they truly feel about the situation just because they may lose something from doing such. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I think primarily as a black man, you know, it's sort of my duty to say something. And especially in the sport of football, I think I was looking at some statistics about it. I think around the NCAA collegiate level of football, like 47% of the players are black. You know, we're the majority. You know, in the NFL, 70% of the players are black. We're the majority. And it's taken this long for us to sort of band together and be like, okay, look, we see the issues going on. You do it, I'll do it. You do it, I'll do it. And we find strength within each other. So I think it's, it's the utmost importance to say something about these issues because, you know, as a black man, this is what I'm facing, what my kids are going to face, my grandparents have faced, my mom and dad have faced, my sister has faced. Why would I not speak up on issues that plague my family? Thank you all for listening today. This was part one of our season finale. We'll be back next week to talk with the guys about the new Tennessee Football Culture Committee and how they plan to make an impact. We'll talk to you all next week. The Slice is hosted and written by Casey Funderburg, produced by Stacia Patterson and Isaac Fowler. Sound design and technical support by Paul Jones and Colton Carnley at Oralation Studios. Music by APM Music. Additional support from Akilah Laster, Bill Martin, Jimmy Delaney, Evan Ford, Daniel Hansen, and Barry Rice. Until we meet again, thank you and good afternoon.